Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. The big lie is that God wants to make our lives miserable. Most people think that if I give my life to God, that is just the end of all that's enjoyable, all that's pleasant. I'm now consigned to a life of boredom and a life of misery. I mean, what an incredible life. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the Gospel of John. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his teaching on John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, in a message titled, The Joy of the Lord. Now, here's Pastor Brian. It was more than a miracle. It was a miracle that was pointing to something else. Now, the first is is the point that we want to think about for a moment. There are many myths and legends. And man, in in the, the age of the internet, this stuff is, it's so prolific out there. People, every weird thing that's ever been said throughout history about Jesus, that's the stuff people find on the internet. You know, we get this question on pastor's perspective all the time. Um, What was the name of Adam's first wife? (laughs) It's like, well, let's read in the Bible. Adam only had one wife, as far as we could tell. Her name was Eve. Oh, but what about Lilith? (laughs) So this this comes from some 500-year-old or more rabbinical myth, but man, somebody stuck it on the internet. Now everybody thinks Adam had a wife named Lilith. And likewise, these myths and legends that that rose up around Jesus over long, long centuries— People are talking about these things today. Myths and legends about Jesus performing miracles as a child, for example. One such myth says that Jesus, as a boy, traveled to Britannia, traveled to Britain, with Joseph of Arimathea, and there he performed various miracles. So it didn't take the age of the internet for that to to get disseminated. William Blake, in his wonderful poem that is sometimes called Jerusalem, although he didn't name it that, he has these lines, and they're based on this idea. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy lamb of God on England's pleasant pasture seen? As much as I love this poem, the answer is no. (laughs) No, he did not. (laughs) These are the kinds of myths. And John, if we just would read the Bible, we would know that Jesus as a boy did not go around healing his friends who were sick or patching up the wings of a little sparrow that had a broken wing or 
raise the neighbor kid from the dead or any of those kinds of things. No, this is the first miracle that Jesus performed. And it is an interesting one. He turned water into wine. Now, there are some Christians who don't like this miracle for probably obvious reasons. No, it wasn't really wine. He turned it into, well, it was grape juice in the end. Jesus turned the water into wine. There have been attempts, though, by some to sort of contradict the obvious and to say, well, it, you know, it wasn't wine like we think of it today and, and so on and so forth. But I want to quote to you from J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle was... Uh, the Bishop of Liverpool, who lived in the late 1800s through the sort of the mid 20th century, highly respected, renowned biblical expositor. And, and I'm, I'm quoting J.C. Ryle because some would say that because I, I hold a different position, some would say, oh, you know, branch has been influenced by these modern thinkers, and so forth. So J.C. Ryle is not a modern thinker, per se, and he is highly respected among all evangelical expositors. Listen to what he said. He said, it seems utterly impossible on any fair and honest interpretation to reconcile the passage before us with the leading principles of what is commonly called teetotalism which we sometimes, a few people use that word today still, but the idea is total abstinence from any alcoholic beverage. So Ryle goes on, he says, if our Lord Jesus Christ actually worked a miracle to supply wine at a marriage feast, it seems to me impossible by any ingenuity to prove that drinking wine is sinful. Temperance or moderation in all things is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Total abstinence from alcoholic beverages might be for some necessary, but to say as many do that to drink any alcoholic beverage at all is a sin is taking up ground that cannot be maintained in the face of the passage before us without twisting the plain meaning of Scripture." So it is not my point to preach on this subject today, but it's right here in the text. And I still hear over and over again, you know, people insisting, and it's hard to get around the reality that Jesus turned water into wine. And it was real wine. And notice even the host, he, he implies that. What does he say? He says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper after when the guests have had too much to drink. Why? Because they won't notice because they got a little buzz at the wedding feast. But again, that's not my point. But I think sometimes we just need to address what's right there in the text. Now, also something that I think is interesting. So there, there's... Again, there's so many things here 
I just want to touch on a few, but then we'll get to our main point. But the method of the miracle is really interesting because there is no, I mean, nobody even knows a miracle is taking place. Jesus, he doesn't give any sort of a command. He doesn't say a prayer over it. He simply wills the change and it takes place. And you know, what I love about this is that it just, it just reminds us of how the Lord works. He works in, in a variety of different ways. Sometimes it's through a verbal command. Sometimes it accompanies a prayer. Sometimes God just simply just does, this is, this is what we're gonna do. So here they fill up the water pots and then he says, draw out the water. And when they draw it out, they find that it's not water. It's wine. So one other thing, and then we'll move on to our main point. The other thing is to note where this took place. This first miracle of Jesus takes place at a wedding feast. I do think that there's something that is being communicated through that. Because just like today, marriage has fallen on hard times and there's all kinds of confusion about the nature of marriage. It wasn't as confused back then as it is now, but it was still confusing. But in in performing his very first miracle at a wedding feast, you have to recognize that Jesus is putting his stamp of approval upon what God established in the beginning. In the beginning, a man shall leave his father and mother, cling to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. By performing his very first miracle at a wedding, Jesus is affirming that marriage is God's institution. It is ordained by God, and everything God said about it is the way it is supposed to be. It is honorable, as Hebrews 13 tells us, and in the context of marriage, the bed is undefiled, and it is marriage between a man and a woman. But that brings us to the main point. The main point is that this sign John says it's a sign. It's a miracle, yes. But John says it's a sign. And he uses the word sign because what John is doing, remember, he wants us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And through believing, we would have life in his name. So these are things that are gonna point us to that reality. So this is pointing us to this, this higher truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do. So, so what are the things that are communicated through the sign? Number one, the true nature of Christ is, that's, that's being communicated here because he creates The true nature of Christ is that he is the Lord Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. John has already stated such in the prologue. You remember he said concerning 
the word who was with God and the word was God. He said, all things were made by him and without him, nothing that was made was made. So now, having stated that, John is pointing to this sign as showing that that is to be true. Because you can't turn water into wine without a creative act, and only God can do that. So that is one of the things a sign is pointing to. The second is this, that Jesus has power to transform. Jesus has power to transform. He can take something as plain and common as water and make it extraordinary. And this is the message of the gospel. This is what John is talking about in his purpose statement. Life in his name means transformation taken from one thing and made into something else. You know, I like C.S. Lewis. I like to read his literature and I like to read about him. I've read a number of biographies on him. He was, um, we know him as the author of the, the children's books, the Chronicles of Narnia, and of course, the, uh, the great apologetics book, Mere Christianity, and, um, and, and other books, screw tape letters, and, and so forth. But Lewis was a, he was an academic. He was a, he was a prof, professor at Oxford. And um, he became uh, the chair of, of medieval literature at Cambridge. But, you know, he, he was a, a brilliant man and he was recognized as that. When he became a Christian, this is such a, it's a little thing, but it's a big thing. This is, my point is transformation. When he became a Christian, he stopped keeping a journal. He stopped. Now, his journal that he was keeping was basically his thoughts, his account of things, that would be used in his mind at some point to promote him to a higher social position. When he becomes a Christian, he stops taking a journal or stops writing his journal. Doesn't mean that he didn't write stuff about his faith after that, but his, his own personal journal that was, was a piece of you know, who he was that, that would be used to promote him he stopped and he said this. When asked why he stopped, he said, because I don't need any of that anymore. I've, I've got what I was looking for and I've entered into what I was created for. That's transformation. That's radical transformation. And we could talk about hundreds of transformed lives, but that's what Jesus does, just like he took water 
this common substance of water and he made it into wine. He made it into something extraordinary, not just into wine, but into new wine, the best wine. That's what he does in a person's life. He transforms us. And thirdly, and this is actually my main point, he came to bring us joy so that we might have life in his name. He's come to give us abundant life, life to the fullest. Jesus would, will say later in this gospel that he said these things that our joy might be full. So you see, he came to bring people joy. Here's the thing. Wine is symbolic of joy. Listen to Psalm 104, 15. Wine which makes the human heart cheerful. God gave wine which makes the human heart cheerful. So what Jesus is, is demonstrating by doing his first miracle, this sign, at this wedding, beside all the things that we've looked at, what he's demonstrating is that the life in his name is a, a life of joy. It is a life of joy. The big lie is that God wants to make our lives miserable. How many people have bought into that lie? Like most people think that. Most people think that if I give my life to God, that is just the end of all that's enjoyable, all that's pleasant. I'm now consigned to a life of boredom and a life of misery. I mean, what an incredible lie that has been bought by so many. It is so opposite of the reality. But that's what people so often think. Nothing could be further from the truth. The first sign is a reminder to all of those suffering under the misery of their own sin or the sins of others that God's heart for humanity is that we would live happy, peaceful, joyful lives. That's what God intended for the human race. And that's how it was in the very beginning. But then the devil came along and suggested to the first two people that no, there's really more out there that God's holding you back from. See, God knows that if you eat this fruit, you're gonna, you're gonna be like him and he doesn't want anything like that to happen. And that was the first lie. That was the lie that sent the human race in the direction that we've gone in. And it's the lie that people are still believing today. But it's not true. It's not true. And one day, we'll know. Everyone will know. Because Christ will come and give beauty for ashes the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. 
That's, that's what Jesus will bring with him when he comes to set up his kingdom. So in this present dark world, I mean, this is where we are. And, and I have to confess to you guys, I'm struggling with all the information that I'm getting all week long about what's happening with people that we know and love. I am struggling with, Lord, how do I preach on joy? Because this stuff is so depressing. But you know, in this present dark world, there are still places of joy. And I can tell you right now that I know that there are people who have joy because they know the Lord is with them. And that's where their joy is at. And that is the reality. Wherever Jesus is, there is joy. Too many Christians are upset, angry, agitated, discouraged, and depressed. Too many. I believe God wants his people to be a joyous people. He wants us to be a joyous people. Not trite or trivial, but those who can take the problems of the world seriously, yet at the same time be joyful, hopeful, kind, and loving. See, this is a mark of the people of God throughout the ages that the people of God have a different mindset than the people who don't know God. And the people of God have a different demeanor because we know the Lord, because we trust the Lord. Now, like I'm saying, that doesn't mean that we're trite or trivial. It doesn't mean that we don't recognize the seriousness of the moment. It doesn't mean that we are not considerate of the sufferings of others and we just seize the, the moment of crisis for some people to promote our perspective on something. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that when I look around me and the world is, is caving in, that Jesus is where I need to be focused because in him there's joy. And, and Jesus, actually, when he says, these words I've spoken to you that your joy may be full, he, he's telling his disciples at that point about the, the tragic events that are going to unfold before them. He's telling them this all before he goes to the cross, hours before he goes to the cross. But he says, I'm telling you these things that your joy may be full. Keep your eyes on me. And so, invite Jesus into every aspect of your life and you will find the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And that's what this first miracle is reminding us of. God intends us to be a joyful people.
And now, let's join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource on Back to Basics. I know there are so many people that feel like they don't really understand sometimes even the basics of the Christian faith. And a classic book on the topic was written by John Stott, and the book is called Basic Christianity. And this is one of my favorite books because it beautifully and simply but profoundly lays out for us just exactly what the Christian faith is. So I read this book several times over. I read it many years ago. I try to read it every now and again. It's a great book, and I want to recommend it to you, Basic Christianity by John Stott. Again, this month's resource is a book titled Basic Christianity by John Stott. You can order the book Basic Christianity by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book Basic Christianity by John Stott. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the Gospel of John. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.